Well, there's no more momentous event in the history of the world than the death and resurrection of Jesus. And unlike everyone else, Jesus knew what was coming before it happened. Now, of course, he had told his disciples what was going to happen, but they did not seem to understand, at least not fully. Jesus alone really knew what was coming. So what did Jesus have on his mind as he headed toward the cross? What was he going to accomplish through his death? In John 12, Jesus tells us what he was thinking and what he was going to accomplish through his death and resurrection. And what he says there in John 12 are among the last words that Jesus spoke in public that John tells us about. Because after John chapter 12, Jesus is going to be uh, focusing his last hours on his time with his disciples, instructing them before his arrest, before his betrayal, and of course before his crucifixion. Before he spends those last hours with his disciples, he tells the people that have gathered in Jerusalem that are around him, he tells them what is coming and what it will accomplish and calls upon them once again to believe. Many of them, of course, will not. And John will explain why. And his explanation might surprise you. And then at the end of John 12, Jesus will deliver one last sermon before moving on to spend his last hours with his disciples. So let me read for us from John 12. We're going to start in verse 27 and read through verse 50. It's a longer passage than I usually try to tackle in one sermon, but this uh, seemed to all uh, fit together and be able to be wrapped up together before we move on to John 13. So here's what Jesus says, verse 27. He says, Now is my soul troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it. And I will glorify it again. The crowd that stood there and heard it said that it had thundered. Others said, an angel has spoken to him. Jesus answered, this voice has come for your sake, not mine. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. So the crowd answered him, We have heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. How can you say that the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? So Jesus said to them, The light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in the darkness does not know where he is going. While you have the light, believe in the light, that you may become sons of light. When Jesus had said these things, he departed and hid himself from them. Though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him, so that the words spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Lord, who has believed what he heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? 
Therefore they could not believe. For again Isaiah said, He has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him. Nevertheless, many even of the authorities believed in him, but for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it, so that they would not be put out of the synagogue. For they loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. And Jesus cried out and said, Whoever believes in me, believes not in me, but in him who sent me. And whoever sees me, sees him who sent me. I have come into the world as light, so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. If anyone hears my words and does not keep them, I do not judge him. For I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. The one who rejects me and does not receive my words has a judge. The word that I have spoken will judge him on the last day. For I have not spoken on my own authority. But the Father who sent me has himself given me a commandment, what to say and what to speak. And I know that his commandment is eternal life. What I say, therefore, I say as the Father has told me. Now, right before this, Jesus has told us that his hour has come. Throughout the Gospel of John, we've been told... It was not Jesus' hour yet. It was not his time yet. But now in chapter 12, Jesus says, It is time. My hour has come. And he responds to that in verse 27 by saying that his soul is troubled. Jesus does not head to the cross as a stoic, unruffled, unbothered, unemotional. Jesus is troubled. Jesus is bothered. Jesus is experiencing some kind of of turmoil or whatever you want to call it as he heads to the cross. He's fully God, but he's also truly man. And as he contemplates not only his death, but what that death will mean as he takes our sin upon his shoulders on the cross... He's troubled. And yet he says, what should I say? Should I, should I ask the Father to deliver me from this trouble, from this experience that's coming? He says, it's for this purpose I have come to this hour. I can't bail at the last minute. This is the whole reason why I came. Now, of course, when Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane on the night when he's betrayed, he does ask the Father, if it's possible, please take this cup. Let it pass from me. But the resolve he expresses after that, yet not my will, but your will be done. We see already here in chapter 12, as he says, this is why I came. This was my purpose. Jesus came not just to live and perform miracles and teach. He came to lay down his life. He came to accomplish salvation. He came to be crucified and to rise so that we could experience eternal life and be reconciled to God. And it cost Jesus something to do that for us. It was not easy. In one sense, he did not want to do it. But in another sense... 
That's exactly what he wanted. That's exactly why he came. That's exactly what he did. What did it accomplish, though, for him to go to the cross and to lay down his life? Some of what it accomplished, we know. We know very well. We know that it accomplished the forgiveness of our sins, that he shed his blood so that we could be cleansed from our sins, so that we could be forgiven. But other things that Jesus accomplished through his death, we don't think about as often. One of the things Jesus says that his death accomplished is the judgment of the world. Verse 31, he says, Now is the judgment of this world. What does he mean by that? Well, when he is talking about the world here, he's talking about the world that has set itself in opposition to him. It's the same thing he's talking about back in chapter 7 when he says to his brothers, The world cannot hate you. But it hates me because I testify about it that its works are evil. So the world there doesn't include every person, right? Because many people don't hate Jesus. They believe in Jesus. They follow Jesus. But the world that Jesus is talking about is those who are set in opposition to Jesus, who do hate Jesus and want to be rid of Jesus. And Jesus says that his Death will accomplish their judgment in this sense. The world passes its judgment on Jesus. We think you're dangerous. We think you're a liar. We think you're a blasphemer. We don't like you. We don't want you around. We want you dead. We don't believe you're the Messiah. We don't believe you're the Savior. We don't believe we need you. In fact, we'd rather not have you around. In Jesus' death and then his following resurrection, it becomes clear, though, that Jesus is exactly who he said he is. It becomes clear that he is the Messiah, that he is the Son of God, that he is the Savior, that he was sinless, that he did not do anything to deserve death, but that he is the one true Messiah. And so the judgment that the world passes on Jesus is overturned and Jesus is vindicated and at the same moment he's vindicated, the world is judged because the world is shown to have been wrong about Jesus. People talk all the time about being on the wrong side of history. What you don't want to be on the wrong side of is God. God says, this is my beloved son. Listen to him. You don't want to say, I don't think he's your son, and I don't want to listen. Those are the ones, Jesus says, who are judged in the hour of his death. Not only the world, but he also says in the second half of verse 31, now will the ruler of this world be cast out. He's talking there about Satan, right? We know that God rules over everything. But the ruler of the world is the the leader, the chief of those who are in rebellion against God. Those who hate God. That's Satan. The Bible also calls him, uh, in another place, the the prince of the power of the air. Uh, In another place, he's called the, uh, the god of this age, lowercase g. That's who Jesus is talking about here. And he says that... At the hour of his death, 
Satan will be cast out. Satan will be conquered. Satan will be defeated. If you think about it, throughout his ministry, Jesus has been casting out demons. People who've been oppressed by demons, he's been casting those demons out. Those demons know who Jesus is. On one occasion, at least, they ask, you know, are, are you here to torment us before the time? Right? They, they knew He was the Son of God. They knew that He had authority over them. He was casting them out. Jesus one time said, uh, you know, if you want to plunder the house of a strong man, what do you have to do first? You have to bind the strong man. Satan has this power and authority over the world in order to plunder Satan's kingdom, as it were, that kingdom of darkness. Jesus has to bind him and redeem those who had been captive to Satan and sin and death. And in his own death, that's exactly what Jesus does. He casts out Satan himself. Now, it doesn't mean that Satan's no longer active and operative in the world. The Bible makes clear that he is. But it also says this in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 14. It says, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he, Jesus, himself likewise partook of the same things. So Jesus took on flesh and blood like us. Why? That through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil. That's another way of saying the same thing that Jesus is saying here. That through his death, Jesus conquers Satan. Now, Satan won't be fully and finally banished until the return of Christ. John tells us about that in the book of Revelation. But the decisive victory over Satan is accomplished at the cross. That victory has already been won. That, That blow, that defeat has already been leveled and accomplished against Satan. So Jesus says the world is going to be judged in his death. Its verdict is going to be shown to be wrong. Satan is going to be cast out, conquered through Jesus' death. But also, Jesus says in verse 32 and 33, And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. So when he says, when I am lifted up, there are not a whole lot of ways you can die by being lifted up, but people in that day knew of one in particular, right? because they saw it often. Jesus was not the only person, of course, to be crucified. Rome used that punishment, that method of execution often. And so Jesus says, this is how I'm going to die. I'm going to be lifted up. I'm going to be crucified, and when I am, he says, I'm going to draw all people to myself. So there's a reason why we focus so much on the cross, why we think so much about Jesus' death. There's a reason why the cross is you know, the central symbol of Christianity. There's a reason why so many of our songs and hymns are about Jesus' suffering and death. It is because in his death, by his death, he draws all people to himself. Now, he doesn't mean every individual person. Right? We know that, one, just by experience, because many people are not drawn to Jesus. Many people resist Jesus. But experience alone is not a good enough reason to interpret 
Jesus is saying that way. What we need to look at is the context of what Jesus is saying and what he means when he says, when I'm lifted up, I'll draw all people to myself. He's referring to what just happened earlier in chapter 12 when some Greeks came to seek Jesus. It was when those Greeks came asking to be introduced to Jesus that he said, the hour has come. And in his death, he's going to draw not every individual person, but all kinds of people to himself. Not just Jews, but also Gentiles, Greeks, Romans, Syrians, Samaritans, all kinds of people to himself. When uh, Jesus is worshipped in the heavenly throne room in John's vision in Revelation chapter 5, the reason why he is worshipped is because he has shed his blood and by his blood has ransomed people for God from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. That's what he's talking about. I'm going to draw all kinds of people to myself when I'm lifted up. He's been saying this throughout the Gospel of John as well, that he came not only for the Jews, but for all people. What Jesus is saying here reminds me of what Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, where he says, Jews demand signs, and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. A stumbling block to Jews, and folly to Gentiles, so not everyone's going to believe not everyone's going to come but to those who are called both jews and greeks christ the power of god and the wisdom of god it's not that everyone looks on the cross and then is drawn to jesus but many from jews and gentiles from every nation from all peoples do look at the cross and see not folly not a stumbling block they see the power of God, they see the wisdom of God, they see the love of God, and they are drawn to Him in Christ. Now, when he says this, there are some people in the crowd who are confused. This often happens, right? Sometimes it's Jesus' disciples, sometimes it's the crowds. Jesus says something and they say, hold on, time out. That's not what we thought was going to happen. That's not what we thought. We thought the Bible said this, but it sounds like you're saying that how do you explain this what they were confused about in uh, verse 34 they say we have heard from the law that the christ remains forever how can you say that the son of man must be lifted up who is this son of man so you're saying you're going to die we thought you were the messiah the christ but the scriptures say that the christ remains forever lives forever So it's the Son of Man, somebody different? How can you die if you are the Christ? Well, as is often the case, they were both right and wrong. The Old Testament does say that the Christ will remain forever. But it doesn't say he won't die. It says he will die and then he will rise. Where they're getting the idea that the Christ remains forever is probably from God's uh, promise to David, his covenant with David, where he told David, I, would, I will put one of your descendants on your throne and I will establish his kingdom and it will remain forever. Okay, well, if his kingdom remains forever, that means he's got to remain forever, right? So that's what they know. What they don't put together with that 
is what the scriptures also say in the Psalms, for example, and uh, in Isaiah, about Jesus' death, the Messiah's suffering, and then his resurrection. Now, Jesus does not give them a direct answer at this point. He doesn't say, oh, well, the answer is, I I am going to die, but then I'm going to rise again. He's told his disciples that, but he doesn't say that here. Instead, he simply appeals to them to believe in him, to trust him. He says, while you have the light, or walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. Then then verse 36, while you have the light, believe in the light that you may become sons of light. There's a period of darkness coming. Believe while you have the light. Trust me. Your questions will be answered sooner than you think. It will only be a few days after his death that he will rise and They'll know how he can remain forever. Jesus makes this call, this appeal to them to believe in him while they have the opportunity. And I would be remiss if I did not do the same. Do you not see that the darkness and brokenness of the world is a result of sin? and rebellion against God, and the activity of Satan. It's not that God does not love us. It's not that God does not care. It's not that God is indifferent or that God is not there. We have broken it. We have colluded with the devil in rebellion against God. We have shaken our fists. We have gone our own way. We have messed it up. And yet, do you not also see the beauty and the wonder and the amazing Love and mercy that is evident in that God who we have shaken our fist at saying, I still love you and I still love you so much. I will give you what is most precious to me. I will give you my own son. And if you will just stop shaking your fist and turn back to me and trust in me, I'll wipe all of that out. All that rebellion, all of that Sin, all that transgression, I will cleanse it from you. I will wipe it all away if you will turn back to me and believe. That's all it takes. That's what he offers. Call him Lord, confess your sin to him, and he will not turn you away. After all, this is the very reason why he came. If you think, not me, can't be me. He wouldn't do that for me. He just told you. Should I seek to avoid the cross? That's the reason why I came. Now, John tells us that many of those, even who heard this appeal from him, still did not believe. Verse 37. He'd done all these signs, he'd done all these things, and still many did not believe. Why not? He says in verse 38, so that the words spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. And then he quotes from Isaiah 53, which is a passage we uh, know most uh, familiarly, uh, the, the middle of, where it talks about how he's been pierced for our transgressions and he's been crushed for our iniquities. But before that portion of Isaiah 53, he says, Lord, who has believed what he heard from us? To whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? There are many who did not believe. Isaiah foresaw this, prophesied this, spoke about this. And not only that, but 
He says in verse 39, therefore they could not believe. Why? Why could they not believe? Didn't God want them to believe? Didn't Jesus want them to believe? Why could they not believe? And he quotes Isaiah again, this time from chapter 6, where God has said, you know, who shall I send? Isaiah says, here I am. And then uh, God says, okay, here's what I want you to say. Right? Here's what I want you to do. And uh, John picks that up here where he quotes from uh, Isaiah 6 where he says, He has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn and I would heal them. It's a, it's a pronouncement of judgment against Israel. A hardening of their heart. Where God hardened Pharaoh's heart, God also hardens Israel's heart. Why? Because they'd already rejected him. They had brought down God's judgment upon themselves because they had already turned from him. The reason why so many do not believe is because even before this moment, they had already decided that they preferred other gods to the true God. Whether it was themselves, or whether it was some god of another nation, or whatever it was, they had already turned away from God to other things, and so a blindness, a hardness came upon them so that they could not see, they could not believe, they could not respond rightly to Jesus. And amazingly, but not surprisingly, in verse 41, John says, Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him. Who's him? Whose glory is his glory? He's talking about Jesus. So wait a minute. John is saying that Isaiah saw Jesus. Yes, that's exactly what John is saying. Well, how is that possible? Because Isaiah prophesied 700 years before Jesus came. How is it possible that he saw Jesus' glory and spoke about him and spoke about things that would happen in his life and ministry? Well, if we've been paying attention to other things John has said, it's not hard to understand. Because John said at the very beginning that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and it was that Word that took on flesh and dwelt among us. So before Jesus was born, the Son of God existed eternally, forever. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, all three persons, one God, have always existed. Now, it was at a particular point in time that God the Son took on flesh and was born of a woman and entered the world and lived and taught and performed miracles and died and so on. But the Son of God who took on flesh, who we know is Jesus, the Son of God did not begin in Mary's womb or at any time. He has always been. And so when Isaiah had that vision of the Lord high and lifted up, he saw not only the glory of God the Father, but he saw the glory of God the Son, who would, again, take on flesh and dwell among us. Isaiah saw Jesus before 
his incarnation before he took on flesh. Then he says that many people actually did believe, in a way, but they were afraid to make it public. Verse 42, Nevertheless, many of the authorities, even of the authorities, believed in him. But for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it, so that they would not be put out of the synagogue. For they love the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. They believed that Jesus was who he said he was. But they were more concerned about what would happen to them in this life. What men could do to them in this life than they were concerned about what God would have to say about them. Or what God could do for them not only in this life but beyond. They believed but they were afraid. They didn't want to get kicked out of the synagogue. They liked people thinking well of them. They knew people hated Jesus. People with power hated Jesus. And so if they aligned themselves with Jesus, they would put themselves on the wrong side of that line. And they didn't want that. Now, from our vantage point, that seems awfully foolish. Because we, knew, we know who won and who lost. Right? We know that the Pharisees are the villains, in a sense, of the story. Now, people didn't know that at the time. We know, though, that Jesus is vindicated, that Jesus is raised from the dead, that Jesus is the Son of God. And so we can look back and say, why would you be afraid of the Pharisees? Why would you care about getting kicked out of the synagogue? Why were you unwilling to put it all on the line? Why were you unwilling to make it public? But we face the same temptation. And... The same thing is true for us, that one day, not very long from now, it will be clear who was on the right side and who was on the wrong side. And we will be able to look back and see how foolish it was to be afraid of what people thought about us, how foolish it was to be afraid of what people could do to us. And everyone who said... I care more about what God thinks about me than what man thinks about me. I am willing to publicly acknowledge that I belong to Jesus, that I I believe in Jesus. I don't care what anybody else says or thinks about it. Those are the ones who will be vindicated. Those are the ones who we will look back on and say, they knew the truth. They knew what was going on. So reading about their experience and their responses causes us to think about our own. Whose verdict do you fear most? Do you want people to say to you, well done? Or do you want God to say to you, well done? Which one of those matters to you most makes all the difference in a thousand different circumstances? That Decision, that priority shapes our life and shapes our eternity. Finally, Jesus gives one last appeal, and we'll touch on this quickly because many of the things Jesus says here we've heard before in other places in similar ways. He says uh, in verse 44, it says, He cried out and said, Whoever believes in me believes not in me, but him who sent me. And whoever sees me sees him who sent me. Right? That's just what we were talking about with Isaiah. 
Isaiah sees the glory of God. That includes the glory of Jesus. You see Jesus in his incarnation. You're not only seeing Jesus, you're seeing the Father. If you want to know what God the Father is like, all you have to do is look at Jesus. What does Jesus do? What does Jesus say? How does Jesus respond? In every circumstance, he is revealing to us God the Father. It's not as though we look at Jesus and say, wow, Jesus is really compassionate. I wish that God the Father was that compassionate. God the Father seems so much more judgmental, so much more harsh, so much more bent on punishment. Jesus is really nice, though. No, 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 no. Every act of compassion and kindness and mercy that Jesus shows is revealing the heart of God the Father as well. We get really confused about God's nature, God's character, God's heart. Jesus shows us what that heart, what that nature, what that character is. And it is a heart of compassion and love and mercy. Jesus brings light into darkness. Verse 46, I've come into the world as light so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. He comes not to judge, but to serve. There will be judgment, but that's not why he came. He came to save. He came to serve. He came to speak words of life, he says. The last verse, verse 50, I know that this commandment is eternal life. What I say, therefore, I say as the Father has told me. Earlier in John 6, he said, It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. So Jesus came to give life by laying down his life. And when he did so, he defeated Satan and began to draw people to himself. And even in his death, he was showing us the Father. The Father's love for sinners like you and me. He came to save. He came to give life. He came to give light. And may the Lord open the eyes not only of our hearts, but of many more to see and believe and receive the life and salvation that only Jesus can give. Let's pray.